Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. This is Tony LaGreca, and this is Courage to Hope. And tonight, we have a couple of guests on together. We have Elaine Pazicki and Angelo Valente, partnership with Drug Free. And um, I found Elaine's story. She's actually doing a podcast or a, or a show regarding the awareness of opioid uh, prescriptions and addiction. And Elaine, I'm going to start with you. Um, would you like to start and tell your story about what happened with your son, Steve, and sure. where, it, where it came? Well, um, my family, uh, like so many other families, was devastated by the loss of our son, Stevie, to the opioid epidemic. And we still are. Uh, Stevie developed a dependency and addiction to opioids after they were prescribed following a sports injury um, that he uh, had an operation on his rotator cuff. He was prescribed uh, 60 Oxycontin tabs with refills uh, so that he could do some rehabilitation. And um, I didn't realize how powerful these drugs are and neither he nor I were given any information on how addictive these drugs could be and how fast a dependency occurs, which we now know is five days. I truly believe that had my son or I have been told of this potential for dependency and addiction of the opiates he was prescribed, that he would be alive today. Had I only known how addictive these drugs could be, I would have decided to look for alternatives and I would have known to look for the signs and symptoms of opioid abuse. Um, I had no idea that those prescriptions for the opioids I was picking, I picked up to help my son had the same effect on his brain and body as heroin. It has the same chemical structures. They are almost identical, about 98, 99%. And four out of five heroin users started with with prescription opioids. So they are not receiving an informed choice and the healthcare providers are not discussing the risks and alternate treatments for these opioids. After my son passed away, I realized that this, what was the problem and speaking to so many other families and mothers, we had no idea. I mean, it, It's a little more understanding now. People understand it better. But the doctors were not trained 
about opioids. They were lied to, as um, a lot of these documentaries are explaining to people. But it's still happening. And once you are addicted, your brain changes. The synapses and the neurons change in size and in shape. And the only thing that they know and they want is that drug to calm them down. It's their pleasure. It's the only thing they want. Uh, My son was in and out of rehabs. And I thought every single time since he was clean that he wouldn't have the craving. It is not true. This craving almost lasts forever. So I am an advocate of prevention. I think that if, if you put the horse before the cart, not the cart before the horse with, with the rehabs, and every rehab is different in their approach. Um, the most important thing to me is to get this information out and have doctors explained to their, to the, to their patients before they prescribe an opioid of their dangers Give them alternatives and write it down in the chart that this conversation was had, especially, you know, or the parents of a minor. I mean, it should be across the board that this this is for everyone who gets an opioid. And that's what my mission has been since my son died, which was 10 years ago. I joined the partnership nine years ago and we've had. A great success with um, states that have passed the bill, the patient's right to know bill. Um, And Angelo could tell you more about um, what's been happening in Washington. We are trying also to have it passed in Washington. So this is our working goal. And we are at it every single day. Thank you, Elaine. That's, you know, I know it never goes away. No, no, it doesn't. A lot of, a lot of people who have never lost a child, they think they understand, but they really don't. And it's definitely the hardest thing. And my story is pretty similar to yours. Oh, it is. Yeah. My son was playing football in college and was given a prescription of a hundred oxycodones. And they said, take three or four a day for 30 days. And same thing, had refills. And they said that his neck was arthritic and it looked like the neck of an 80-year-old. And for all the pain he was going to have, this is what he needed to take. And like you, the man was wearing a, uh, you know, it was a doctor wearing a, you know, wearing a lab coat. And your first instinct is, oh, boy, we got a professional. Here's somebody that knows what they're doing and somebody that knows what they're talking about. Right. uh, And we found out later that, you know, turned out that my son's drug dealer wore a lab coat is the real thing. That's correct. And so, and and sorry, thank you. I'm just, I'm just sorry for your loss. I'm sorry for anyone who has to go through this because it's not just that they passed away. It's like the time before. You know, your your hopes are up and they're down and then they're up and then they're down. You think it's fine. My son was was clean for almost two years and he just tried it once, but and is at a party. That's that's that did it. Yeah, that because once you've been away from it and you come back, yes, 
the time that most people die. They they think that they oh I can do it just one more time. I know that's what happens. I, you know, I my know. son my son never got clean. He was so dependent on it. It was his life his lifelong thing, and you know he just was so afraid of being dope sick that he just wouldn't give it up. And the day he died, he got a prescription for Suboxone and was willing to try something different, but never woke up the following morning. And so he, he, he never got to it. Um, so that's what brings us both to the same table. We both have a mission. Yes. And we have, we have this bill in Massachusetts, HR 4814, which is the Right to Know Act. Yes. Just the way you described it, that parents uh, would yes. know. So, Angela, would you, could you give us the sure. details and so forth from here? Uh, absolutely. Um, so as Tony just mentioned, um, the Partnership for Drug Free New Jersey and New Jersey was the first state uh, back in 2017 uh, with Elaine's leadership to pass the, the Patient's Right to Know Act. And what's really interesting is that uh, prior to the legislation going into effect, about 20% of doctors were sharing this information with their patients and with families of children. And that number climbed to over 90% after the legislation went into effect. So what we have seen in the state is a real transformation of people becoming knowledgeable and aware of, of the, what they're receiving looking for the signs and symptoms of addiction. And Tony, what's interesting is that most recently uh, during COVID, um, we've seen around the country, unfortunately, such an increase in overdose deaths uh, caused by substance use dependency. And New Jersey was one of only three states in the nation that did not see an increase over the last two years. In fact, the numbers were stable. Now, certainly we know that those numbers are extremely high and that every particular, every single life needs to be saved. However, we were, we were really encouraged to see that we weren't experiencing the same kind of upward trends as a lot of other states. And part of that reason is because we have, we have an, an informed public in the state. We have people who are receiving opiates or more importantly, who are receiving alternatives to opiates when they're in acute pain. And we think that, that there's a real direct link between the legislation. So it's so important that Massachusetts joins the other 18 states, and there are now 18 states throughout the country that have passed this law. And uh, the, the bill number in Massachusetts is four, House Resolution Bill number 4814. Uh, what we would encourage your listeners to do is to please contact their local legislative representatives and encourage them to get the bill passed. Uh, the bill has passed the first hurdle. It went through the health committee about a month and a half ago. And now uh, the next step would be the health and finance committee. It's a joint committee of both the lower and upper house. And when that passes, I'm not gonna say if, but when that passes, it will go directly to the governor's office and it'll become law in Massachusetts, meaning that every single patient receiving an opiate prescription or every single patient in acute pain is going to be have the option of looking at alternatives to opiates and also know the signs and symptoms of addiction early so that if they are receiving an opiate for a particular problem or a particular 
a situation that their families will be well aware to look for those signs and symptoms. So we want to thank you, Tony, for your leadership in Massachusetts, because we know without your help, we wouldn't be able to be at the point we're at now. Thank you, Angelo. And I had um, my state rep, Joshua Cutler, on a couple of weeks ago on the show. And one thing I was shocked to hear was that there are 5,000 bills that are actually brought to the House and Senate in the beginning of each um, term. And the biggest thing is we need to get the different state senators and, and House of Representatives across the state aware of the bill. Because when you have 5,000 bills out there, it's a lot of bills to look at, you know. And even yes. if it's a great bill, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to see it, you know. So if we can get the phone calls, you could call your state rep and your state senate senator um, and tell them it's in the Health and Finance Committee and you want to see it come out. So people like Elaine and myself don't keep telling the same story. Yeah. The unfortunate thing is Elaine was innocent. I was innocent. I, had, I didn't even know what an opioid was. I know. I, I got know. this prescription for my son. I had no clue. And... Same thing with the parents today who have um, kids who are in high school and playing sports and doing all kinds of activities. You know, you can fall off your bicycle and break your ankle and this is going to happen. You know, and if you're in it, if you're somebody who has never paid attention to it, um, you, you wouldn't you would just go fill the prescription like we did because, you know, you, you trust the doctors. That's, that's always been probably one of the most trusted person in your community is your family doctor or the local hospital emergency room. You assume that they all know what they're doing and what, and, and they get our best interest at heart. Um, and most of them did. Uh, it's just that they were influenced by uh, a group of pharmaceutical people that were just not so innocent and thought and put profits ahead of our kids' lives. And this is what we, we, we need to get this bill passed. Again, it's, uh, I keep having a brain cramp, HR 4814. Um, that's how you have to address it and say and tell them it's in the Health and Finance Committee. And maybe you have a senator or a state rep who's on that committee. That would be that would be key if you find out who's on that committee and give that person a call. That's that's one of the most critical people to get a hold of. Uh, also, we'll be doing over the next several months leading into the next session for the Massachusetts legislation is Elaine and her family also have established a group called Prevent Opiate Abuse. And it's the group that has been going around the country that has been advocating for this law to pass. And I know that Elaine and, and Prevent Opiate Abuse is committed to helping in any way to have this bill passed in Massachusetts. So we will be available to help you and the our sponsors because we have about 10 sponsors now in uh, on this bill uh representatives that have all agreed to to be sponsors of the bill so we're, we're looking forward to working with them and working with all the volunteers on the ground uh to help get this message out over the next couple of months so we can get it signed into law before the end of the year and the end of the session that'd be great elaine do you yes um you since this has happened to you um, how do you how do you go on with every every day? How do you how do you deal with the situation, knowing what you know 
loss of your son than when you go out and talk to people like oh. from hot, you know. You mean when you're at a dinner party? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's always difficult. I have to brace myself and I have to, you know, someone says, how many children do you have? I always say two. And, um, you know, and then I start talking about my daughter and my grandchildren. And then if they ask me about my son, Stevie, I say, he's passed. He passed away. And I don't say anything else. And I take deep breaths. And I, and, and that helps me that, that helps me because before I was nervous, what am I going to say? What are they going to, you know, there was a stigma around it too in the beginning. And, but now I, do, I feel like, um, you know, since everything has come out about the Sackler family and all of that, you know, people are, they understand so much more that, that this could happen. And, um, you know, they, press me further I go into my my talk and then I find out that they knew they knew someone or they know someone that's um gone through the same thing so they everyone knows someone in their family or extended family or in their in their workplace I mean it's so prevalent that this is this has happened and um this unawareness was just so upsetting to me that I thought that this bill would bring awareness to to the doctors, bring awareness to the parents, say, no, there's other things. There's just other ways of handling pain. And, 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 and some pain is good to be aware of. If you You want to to be pain free, you know, you know, and, if you stub your toe and, and you're taking opioids, you're going to stub your toe again because you're not looking out for it. That's and correct. I, I mean, we, we consume, uh, we're 4% of the world population and we consume 85% of that's, the opioids. That's a good statistics. I've used that, but that is so true. They just don't. This was the, far, this is pharmaceutical land. And, yeah. and, and the pharmaceuticals had to had the ear of the FDA. And I, I mean, um, uh, they gave misinformation to the doctors. Um, they, they, they said that it wasn't addicting and it's only, only treats pain. Well, it treated pain, but, and caused addiction at the same time. But, right. but it's, it's difficult to uh, handle, you know, it's been nine years, uh, 10 years for me. I'm sorry. I've been nine years on the partnership. And um, some days it feels like it was happened to me yesterday. You know, some days I can handle it really well. And some days I, I can't handle it. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I give myself more time now and allow myself to feel badly. And then I come out of it. But, it, you know, it's a, it's a process, but it's also going to be with me for the rest of my life. And you have to be, oh, it's not going to go away. Yeah, I, I, find, I find some similarities create high, high anxiety to a point where you get, I get into the point where I start literally sweating. Thinking, when you, you know, go out? Yeah, or, especially in the supermarket. If I triggers, see some, It's a trigger because you see something that they like to eat. Exactly. Or, um, 
a song on the radio, uh, a color that they liked. I mean, a flower that they decided that was their, the one that they thought was the prettiest. I mean, there's, there's a list and it happens every single day that, that there's something on that list that brings you back. So when I get those feelings, I make myself say, hi, Stevie, I love you. Um, I'm going to see you soon. Something like that, but in a positive way. So I don't get so down because it could just bring you down to a rabbit hole. And um, you have to fight. I have to fight it because it's not good for my family. Um, You know, my daughter, I mean, my daughter went through so much. They were best friends and she's missed out a lot. There's no cousins on their side. So, yeah, it, it affects everyone. You know, it's not just that the person passed away and the parents are sad. You've got siblings. You've got your entire family. And, and you've got this haunting happening all the time that, that you have to deal with. And you have to deal with it with grace and prayer, spirituality, um, realizing that there's uh, something more, you know, in the universe and we're all going to get there and uh, know that they don't want you to be sad. There's a lot of, a lot of readings about near death experiences and uh, what, what happens to you after you pass away. And that's, those are the things that help me because that's all, it's all positive. You have to replace the negative with the positive as much as you can. In, 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 our country, in our country, everybody's like, they, you know, people have said to me back in the day, you know, haven't you moved on from that yet? No. Uh, you know, you, they don't get it. They, you know, they say, aren't you over it yet? And Oh, and, 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 and that's not so... cold. I didn't have a cold. My son died. You know, it's a big difference. You know, it's so a big difference. I, I know they say that. I know I've gotten that, too. And um Oh, my grandmother died. I, I know what it's like. No, no, you don't. Because it's different. Losing a child, there is no, nothing that says that, you know, nothing that, that there isn't even a term for it. You no, know? there's no term for it. And it's yeah. not the way it's supposed to be. So it's even odder because you never thought it was going to happen to you. You know, it's. It happened to somebody else. It'll happen to some. Well, this is what this bill, I don't want it to happen to anyone else. Mm. Because it's, it's uh, the worst thing that could happen to you, actually, I feel. Um, I, and, I agree uh, with you. If, you could, if we could help people, <clears throat> excuse me, bring awareness so they don't have to go through this. That's, that's what I'm trying to do. Thank you. And that's what nice. the partnership is doing with me. And I really appreciate that. Angelo, you wanted to add something to this? Uh, Tony I, and Elaine, I just wanted to also share with the listeners is that the other group of, of uh, medical professionals that we need to be um, bringing into this conversation are dentists. Because because of wisdom tooth extractions for young people, Dentists are the number one prescriber of opiates uh, to teens in this country. And we really need to make sure that families are aware 
that when they are in those situations that they don't accept the opiates, uh, that opiates are in most cases, 99% of the cases, not necessary when dealing with wisdom tooth extractions. In fact, we're one of only a handful of countries in the world that prescribe opiates for that procedure. And there's been a lot of research over the last several years that have shown that alternatives over-the-counter medication is just as effective. Uh, Anti-inflammatories and, and other types of over-the-counter medications are just as effective in addressing that, that acute pain that will last a day or so. Uh, there was a study that was done about three or four years ago, and it was a study uh, that showed that of young people who received medication, opiate medication, simply because of a wisdom tooth extraction, that 6% of those young people, six out of 100, were still using opiates one year later. And the only reason that they were in that position is because they were prescribed an opiate when they got a wisdom tooth removed. And that was a Stanford University out of California study. Now, when you start thinking about the thousands and thousands of young people that are going through that procedure every year, we start to realize just why we have this huge epidemic that we're dealing with in this country. And, uh, and as Elaine mentioned, as Tony mentioned, I mean, we believe that, that a lot of what we're seeing now could be reversed. Uh, you know, lives can be saved. And it's simply educating and making right decisions and being informed. And this bill does all of those three things. So, Angela, what do you say when the parent says to you, uh, oh, yeah, my, my dentist told me about it. And so he only gave me two or three pills for my child. You know, they, 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 stay, they make it sound like, well, we only gave her two pills or three pills. Huh. You know, I mean, it's well, like that seems to be the trend today because I. I've known three or four parents who have just recently had their child have even relatives of mine, knowing what I know and knowing what I do, they still took the two or three pills because the dentist insisted on it. And how do we get the dentist to stop insisting? You know, I think in, in some ways, I mean, what we're finding is that, that families and, and patients and, and, you know, certainly parents, have to become much more engaged in making those those decisions. I mean, they have to, you know, if they if they insist on getting a prescription, don't fill it. I mean, if it, if they find themselves in, in you know situations where they cannot deal with the pain, then perhaps going back to the dentist or the doctor the next day or two days later, you know, to find out exactly what's going on. Because in most cases, as I mentioned, in the research that is being done with regard to, in particular, wisdom tooth removal. They're saying that 98, 99% of patients do not need to get that, uh, that prescription filled or use those opiates to deal with that pain. And as I think Elaine mentioned a little bit earlier, that we have to also start telling folks that we need to have a little tolerance for some of the pain that comes along with these types of procedures. That you know, it's okay to, to be uncomfortable for a day or so. Being uncomfortable for a day or so is a lot different than having six out of 100 children become addicted a year later just for receiving those medications. So I think that, you know, dealing with that pain day or so is a lot better choice than the the risk. And and may I add that even if they take one pill, they're going to like it and they remember it. They remember it and their brain remembers it. 
So, uh, and there was a study that was done where um, they realized 800 milligrams of acetamycin and plus 800 milligrams of ibuprofen works better than an opioid for pain. How easy is that? And, and Tony, there also, we have examples where we have hospital systems uh, throughout the country. One in particular that we are aware of in the state of New Jersey, uh, St. Joseph's Hospital in Patterson. They've made a commitment to have their entire uh, emergency room become opiate free. They have developed regimens to deal with pain without using opiates. And we know that if they can do it, you know, any hospital can do it in any, any surgical center. You can can look at a ways to to deal with alternatives. One yeah. of the other groups that that Elaine has has started is the Opiate Education Foundation of America, and the real purpose of that group is to bring this kind of information to policymakers, to legislators, and to the public. And we've had over the last several last year or two uh, webinars that have focused on these creative ways that that the medical community and there's a lot of you know, folks in the medical community that are doing wonderful things. And many, in many situations, they're looking at alternatives and they're very successful in, in, in developing regimens that don't include opiates that are, that are dealing with pain in a, in a very positive way. Uh, one doctor in particular uh, who performs breast surgery in, uh, out of New York state has done over 200 of those surgeries, not using one opiate. And he's gotten almost no complaints from his patients. So we know it's possible, but we know that that effort has to be made on the part of the medical community to, to develop these, these, these new protocols. Yeah, it's an educational thing. When I was yes. <clears throat> hospitalized in March for back surgery, um, every new shift of nurses came in. And the, the first thing they said to me was, oh, wait a minute, how come you're not on tramadol? How come you're not on an opioid? Um, you know, you're going to, they're going to say that you're going to have breakthrough pain and you're not going to be able to correct it. And that, but that education to those nurses uh, who constantly, I mean, this is the, they have been brainwashed for 20 years, but every single one hit me with that. As soon as they walked in every shift, every eight hours, we had, I had new nurses and it was the same old thing. It was over the weekend. So I got all these different people, you know, so it's like, um, how do we get them to change? One of the, the areas that I think has really been making um, an impact, especially on training with nurses and the medical community in general, has been the requirements that some states have been establishing that require continuing medical education credits, specifically on the opiate epidemic. Uh, I know there are over 20 states throughout the country that have adopted these measures. And that's another program that the Opiate Education Foundation is um, is exploring is developing CMEs because it's so crucial that these CMEs come from what we call honest brokers, people that are, don't have any interest other than to bring truthful information to the medical community. Uh, for many years, a lot of these continuing education credits, especially on opiates, were being funded by the pharmaceutical industry. Oh, so, so, so the same folks that were producing the drugs were also educating their uh, the potential customers 
and of course their slant was a lot different than what it should have been. And so, so as we go forward, as more and more states adopt uh, requirements, and actually there's a bill on the federal level uh, called MATE, and uh, that requires uh, continuing education credits on the opiate epidemic before the medical community. So we're seeing a lot of movement towards this mandated education uh, and coming from reliable sources that are not, don't have interest uh, in, in, the pharmaceutical, in the pharmaceuticals that are being sold. And I, and I yes. think Elaine hit it right on the head when she said, well, if you give them one pill and they mm. remember the feeling they got from that one pill, if they're in a type of person that's suffering from depression or bipolar or not, yes. not, in, not in the in crowd or something, and all of a sudden, right. oh, this is yes. the thing that, look at this, you know. And the other issue with opiates, which is very different than a lot of the other epidemics that we've dealt with with regard to substance use disorders, is that, that this can affect anyone. That there's, there's, you have, you know, any person walking into that emergency room or that dental office or that doctor office, there's no way to know how it's going to impact your brain, how it's going to, to change the, the way the brain functions. And it, it happens to people in suburban areas and ur- urban areas, rural areas. It happens to people at all the social economic uh, levels. So it's so important that everyone understands that there's, there's you know, there's no pre-existing conditions <laughs> that would make someone more susceptible to becoming dependent on opiates. It is an equal opportunity <laughs> drug, in, unfortunately, in so many ways. And that's why being opi naive, looking at alternatives, especially when dealing with acute pain, and especially with children. I know uh, Elaine talks about this a lot, but the, ch- the brain of a child is developing well into their early 20s. And we know that it, it's a brain-altering drug. So it, just imagine how it's changing the brain function of a child whose brain is still developing. So and it more- rewires the brain. It's rewiring right. the brain. I know. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot to think about. But it's a, it's a truthful message. And I don't know how anyone can really argue against it. And now I know that we have a lot of pushback sometimes from the AMA, but, um, you know, we're working on that too. Well, they push back against it because their, their campaign gets financed by dollars from the pharmaceutical world. And we know that there's about three lobbyists for every person in the state. And right. yes, we, we've experienced that, <laughs> yeah. um, how, how they how many they have for, when we were speaking, um, that they were there. And uh, uh, yeah, they, they, uh, they're out in force. That's what I can say. Tony, just to share with you, on many occasions, uh, we would be in a room where the final votes would be taking place uh, <laughs> in state by, state by state, and it would be Elaine, myself, and maybe we would have one or two lobbyists that we were working with in a particular state, and they would be maybe 40 or 50 <laughs> a lobbyists and organizations that represent the medical community that were in opposition to our bill. However, fortunately, in 18 states throughout the country, we've been able to pass the bill. And when it does pass, it passes unanimously. Once it gets to that point where there's a vote on that bill, 
we get conservatives, liberals, Democrats, Republicans, independents, all the supported. And that's, I think, really a testimony to, to, to the common sense approach that this bill provides. I mean, it does, it, it's not in any way, uh, you know, have any political affiliations. It's something that, and as I mentioned before, it, it impacts everybody. And, and that's another sure. thing that we found uh, to happen in, in our you know, our experiences as we go and speak to legislators is that there's not a legislator we, we've spoken to that hasn't, has, ha, hasn't had a personal experience where they've been prescribed, where their children or grandchildren have been prescribed. And in 99% of those cases, there wasn't that conversation that was crucial in them, know, in them knowing what they were receiving. So they've all had very, you know, personal experiences with, with, with this kind of process that needs to change. Yeah, maybe it's time again to mention that the number of the bill is HR 4814, and we need everybody's help. We need people to get out there and call their state senator, their state representative. Uh, if you don't know who it is, just look in the phone book or go online and you should figure it'll be, it's easy to figure out. And, um, and if you're not sure, call any, call any of them. We can, it doesn't matter which one you call. It could be outside of your district. Call as many as you can. We would really appreciate that and get that awareness so this bill could get passed. Now, do we have a similar bill that's being trying to get passed on the federal level? Yes. Uh, actually, we have a bill that's being uh, was introduced in Congress by Congressman Trone, who are, is a representative from the state of Maryland. And we have about 15 co-sponsors, again, both Republican and Democrats from throughout the country. And what this, the, the federal bill is, is intended to do is to provide funding to states that have passed the state bill. For example, Massachusetts, once they pass the state bill, will be eligible for funding to help implement the program, to help educate the, the doctors and dentists, to help bring information to the public. So it really is this was was created this this national bill to help enhance states that have been proactive and are are bringing this life saving information and this is a way to be able to help them implement it on a you know and launch this program on on a state by state basis. How far along is that bill? What are the odds of well, it getting done? Um, like government in general, it's been a very slow process. Uh, we've been working on it for about two and a half years at this point right. and uh we're we're hoping that uh there there there's some act activity in the, in this in the senate which is the next step for the bill uh so we're we're keeping our fingers crossed and hoping that that there's some uh some movement on the bill soon so should we look again the same thing uh you reach out to the congressman, woman in the state, different states in the country. In other words, like, because a lot of our listeners are listening to us in Rhode Island and New Hampshire and some in Vermont. Uh, they could do the same thing, right? What What is Absolutely. the, uh, does the it's, bill it's have a number? Patients' Right to Know Act. Uh, and if they just mention that to their congressman, uh, that, would, that would be sufficient in getting their support. Okay. Because we're... We're still waiting for the introduction in the Senate, so we don't have a, a number yet in the Senate, which is really our main focus at this point going into the next uh, several months. 
Okay. Um, to me, this is such a common sense approach to address the epidemic and to save lives. It's an easy, no-brainer type of thing that just puts a light on the on the problem and um, not stepping on anyone's toes. It's just it's the right yeah. thing to do. Absolutely. I, you know, I'm going back to what we were just talking about, I spoke to the, in front of the FDA twice, once with uh, Dr. Kolodnoy. Oh, yes. yes. Me as a parent and him as a doctor. And um, we were talking in front of the, uh, the committee, you know, the, uh, I forget what they technically called it, but I couldn't believe the, the lineup. Um, there was like six of us, a couple other parents, a couple other doctors. And then over on the, the panel wall there, there was like these tables and there was at least 40 people from the drug drug companies that were sit, sitting over there. And it was like, a, uh, it was just overwhelming to just see how they contradicted or tried to attack everything that we were trying to say. Um, it was just the, they call it the oversight committee. And uh, it was just pathetic to see how they, they just, and I just said to them all, you know, I said, how do you, how do you sleep at night? You know, knowing that what you're trying to do is just keep an, an epidemic going, you know. I so applaud you for saying that. You know, how do you sleep at night? You know, it's like, uh, you know, you know, someday it might be your child. You know, little do you know, you you're, it's capable or your cousin or your niece or whatever, you know. So it, for, for people who are listening um, in any state at this point, uh, the bill in Congress is H.R. 1185. So that's the specific number of the bill in Congress. In the House. Uh, in, the, in the House, correct. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we're to, to uh, call and support that. And the Senate version of that bill has yet to be introduced, so we're waiting for that information. So we'll, we'll share it with you, and you can share it with your listeners once we get that. But right now, if you're in Rhode Island or if you're in uh, New Hampshire or, or Massachusetts, uh, not only would we encourage you to contact your local representative to discuss them, and specifically in Massachusetts, uh, uh, House Bill 4814, which is the local New, uh, Massachusetts version, but certainly on a, on, a, on a national basis, we would encourage support for HR 1185. Okay, I want to thank you both for your for your time today. I really appreciate you coming on. The courage to hope, and uh, Elaine, you're definitely the the true the true reason why we do this show because you're out there and you've got the courage to help all these other parents. And then in the innocent parents who don't know that their turn might be next. You know, we, we just recently had the district attorney on from um, Plymouth County, Massachusetts, and they've up to, they've had, they've decreased last year at this time, we had 106 deaths. And now we're down to 57 deaths with the, the same point six months later, you know, within the same period compared to last year. Right. So, we're right. doing a lot of things to make a lot of progress. And and this is the key. And what you do to get out there and just get the people thinking about it, you know. Oh, it's, right. uh, I, one thing is say, oh, not my kid. Oh, you know, that keep that next door. You know, you know, that's right. that's not my problem. But it could be. 
and you, you could be un, unknowingly become part of the problem. And Elaine, you become part of the solution, which is really good. That's the way oh, I like to look you. at this. And I really, I know it's hard to go through that that family, the history of Steve and Stevie. And, and to do that, you know, it takes a lot of courage. And I appreciate Thank you very that. much. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate it. And thank you again, Angelo, for introducing me to Elaine. Appreciate it a lot. Thank you for all you do also. It it takes a village, right? It takes a village. Absolutely. So, Angelo, did you want to say something? I just wanted to thank both of you. I mean, without both of your uh, leadership and sharing of your stories, I mean, we, we know that that certainly we would not be making the impact we're making throughout the country and throughout Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, and so many other places. So, you know, you both are responsible for all the, the positive that's coming out of, of our legislation and also uh, the positive that's coming out of the education that is so crucial in saving lives. Yeah. Thank you very much. This is the courage to hope and you'd like your friends or someone else to hear it, but it's also a podcast. You can go to WMEXBoston.com and you will find that this is a, the podcast will be right there and then Ben will be putting it up on our website. Again, thank you very much. 